This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. If you think about it, COVID has accelerated a fundamental change in consumer behavior. And so if you're a consumer and your choice is to put more weight on a signal that the marketer is giving you or more weight on the signals that actual consumers who are using the products are giving you, well, which one do we think most consumers will eventually default to? We are absolutely seeing that. That's Chauncey Holder, a senior expert at McKinsey. He and senior partner Dave Fedwa are sounding the alarm. McKinsey research shows that consumers' buying decisions are influenced much more by customer reviews than by giant marketing budgets. Leaders know customer reviews are important, but they're not doing enough about them. After, stay tuned to meet mathematician, lawyer, and now early tenure consultant, Princess Daisy Akita. Chauncey, Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Really looking forward to it. Online ratings have been with us for a long while now, but why are they more important now than ever before? COVID is the short answer, but COVID essentially forced trial of a number of new categories and consumers had no choice in the early part of the pandemic, but to trial e as a channel and maybe surprisingly or not, they liked it. When the consumer has essentially transparent information about the product that they're purchasing, you don't have to rely on brand. And so really what you do is you get similarly specified products at roughly the same price point. And now it's just a matter of ratings and reviews. And some of our proprietary research has suggested as much that the increases in e-com penetration due to COVID are not likely to recede or regress to pre-pandemic levels, meaning that particular consumer behavior has been adopted widely by consumers. I think that the total number of global reviews, something like doubled in the year after COVID started. And so when you think about there have been 10 years of reviews before that, that's a lot of reviews in a very short period of time. I think that pace may have slowed some, but it hasn't gone backwards. I think everybody's realized This is an easier, more convenient, frankly, more transparent way to shop. And I'm not going back. I think the second, you know, really kind of interesting thing for reviews offline, you know, for a traditional brick and mortar is something that I think is frequently overlooked. I think that has also increased substantially. It's a little bit harder to measure, but just think about the last few big purchases you made right? You started that process online. You may have ended up in a store to finish it, but you started that process online. And probably if you're like me, you've been in a store and flipping through your phone recently, right? Like, I'm I'm not buying this thing until I read a few reviews. I'm curious then, what would you say affects consumer purchasing decisions more? These online reviews or companies' marketing campaigns? We are in a fundamental paradigm shift, but I'm not sure how much practitioners appreciate the tectonic shifts that we are going through at the moment. If you think about it, COVID has 
accelerated a fundamental change in consumer behavior, meaning rather than going solely into the store and observing what's on the shelf or any traditional sort of marketing lever like you know, just the power of the brand, the availability in the store, some sort of in-store promotion. That's the old world. And so if you're a consumer and your choice is to put more weight on a signal that the marketer is giving you or more weight on the signals that actual consumers who are using the products are giving you, well, which one do we think most consumers will eventually default to? We are absolutely seeing that. That's a great question. I don't know that's one that you could ever answer quantitatively, at least at a macro level. But I think for sure, as Chauncey said, the product is becoming the marketing, you know, the product itself. And I think in the world before reviews, you needed the marketing to tell you what the product was like, and you needed the brand to give you confidence that I know the other things that I bought that had this name on it were good. And so this next one should be good. And quality was a much longer play, longer game, kind of longer bet. And I think what you're seeing now is new brands disrupting spaces that had long been held by, you know, longstanding brands as a result, right? Is this new dynamic plays very well to the disruptor. I think the other thing to say is you can't polish a turd. It's a little (laughs) bit crass, but you know, we came across an example recently where a company was paying, you know, a reasonable amount for promotion online of a product. And when you click through the product, it's rated 3.8 stars. I would say there's no point marketing a product that isn't good, or there's less and less point because you can't hide it. You've got to fix the product regardless. And then, yeah, I'm sure there's lots of different ways that you have to leverage to get awareness out there. It's absolutely table stakes now to have a great product. Are there product categories where this dynamic is particularly taking hold, right? I feel really connected to a certain product versus the toilet paper I buy. Is that what's going on here? Absolutely. The way that I'm currently thinking about it, which is not the only way, but the way that I'm thinking about what categories are more susceptible to these disruptions is by thinking about the category along a couple of dimensions. The first dimension is what is the fundamental benefit or equity that this product is delivering to the consumer? Is it essentially just a functional attribute? Take the product, for an example, a storage container. It does a job and it needs to do the job well, but that's really the only benefit that it's delivering. At the other end of that spectrum, you have product categories that deliver some sort of emotional, intangible equity, for instance, in product categories for newborns. And it stands to reason that the amount of research and investment that people would do at the end of those spectrums would differ wildly. The other lens that I think about is in the competitive landscape. Maybe 15 years ago, if you wanted to build a new product and sell it in the U.S. market, one of your biggest challenges would be how do I get inside of large brick and mortar retailers like Walmart and Target or Home Depot and Lowe's? That type of barrier is nil today. So any enterprising overseas entrepreneur who has some manufacturing and some design capabilities can purchase products, can tear them down and reverse engineer them, and essentially knock it off, put it online with almost zero barriers. And now you 
pair that environment post COVID with a purchasing population that is more willing than ever to try new things. And then you find yourself with a whole bunch of product categories that are highly susceptible to being disrupted in this new environment. We did a study just to round this out. We were looking at the landscape online for this product, and we came across an insight that we were not looking for and had not expected. Essentially, I think in the past two or three years, the number of SKUs available on Amazon quintupled. Like There was a, a four or five X increase in the competition online. And what was even more sort of breathtaking about that is the client didn't know. I think the other compounding factor in all this is on top of this, there's supply chain is, is a really hard right now and there's a lot of out of stock. And so one of the biggest drivers of switching is I think has been known for a while is an out of stock. <laughs> it's like, I need product X. The one I usually buy isn't there. What else is here? Right. I'm going to try something else because I need one today. And so you, you put all that together with like, okay, now there's, you know, great reviews and you know, everything else. And it is, it's all up for grabs. One macro level view of which categories does this matter the most in? Yeah, obviously price point is a big one. Like if I'm going to spend a lot of money, I'm going to research it. Second is emotion to Chauncey's point. Baby car seats are one of the most sensitive things when you compare the relationship between growth and star rating. And unsurprisingly, you can just imagine the, the conversation like, honey, I think the 3.8 star car seat should be fine. And it's like 50 bucks cheaper. You know, you cool with that? Like, just imagine like, the response you're going to get. The third thing I'd say is even if it's not expensive or something that I'm emotionally wrapped up in, like how much of my life is going to be tied to this? We looked at this in home improvement. Some of the ties came out as surprising of things like deck screws or really low cost kind of toilet valve or something, right? And it's like, holy cow, the star rating really matters a lot in these categories. For a minute there, I was like, is this right? What you start to realize is someone's going to spend an hour or two of their Saturday or, you know, maybe a lot more. And it, yeah, it's only five bucks or 10 bucks or, you know, whatever, but they care that they don't want to do it again for a long time. And so, you know, even in lower price point things, it matters. You wrote an article recently for McKinsey.com about how to take online reviews in hand and figure out how to improve the design of your products as a result. What sort of base technical capability do you need to establish in order to analyze reviews to get the insights that you need in order to make these uh, differences in your product categories? The good news is that it's not very complicated nor very sophisticated. Primarily, it's called natural language processing or NLP, and that's using machine learning and maybe to a lesser extent artificial intelligence where we go and we, we crawl websites so that we harvest the consumer reviews, which are publicly available. And then the natural language processing takes these reviews, which are in the industry called unstructured text. And it does two things. It clusters the reviews in the themes. And those themes are usually very product attribute related because of the nature of the reviews. And then it also assigns a valence to a particular review or snippet of a review. So the natural language processing can take that large data set of unstructured text and cluster it into product attributes, and then it can assign a positive, negative, or neutral valence to a given review. 
what the output of that is, is a attribute taxonomy that is essentially from the mouths of the users and then a performance metric, which is your ratio of positive to negative reviews for a given SKU or brand on a given product attribute. The secret to having a successful product business hasn't changed for hundreds of years. It's iteration. Get a product out there and you know you obviously start with, with prototypes, you know, what's not working? Okay, fix that. What's not working? Okay, fix that. But then once you get it out in the market, you know, you got to continue that. You can take every successful company and say that they're doing a good job with that. You can take a lot of unsuccessful companies and say they lost that somewhere and they didn't keep improving and they lost their edge. Elon Musk actually captured this really, really well recently in an interview with the Wall Street Journal. They were sort of asking him about innovation. He was in front of a bunch of CEOs. They are like, what would you tell this group about innovation? And his answer was, I would tell them it's not actually that much about innovation. Instead, I would say it's about asking yourself, is my product as awesome as it could be? And the answer to that is probably no. It's really easy to go out and find out what's wrong with your product, you know, what people don't like about your product and how you compare by attribute to your competitors, like at the sentiment at the attribute level. Most importantly, what are the most important attributes? Like what do people care the most about? So the next problem with that is, okay, I know what I need to fix, but it costs money, right? Now you can be reasonably scientific about that, right? And so the beauty of that is now I can build a business case for the cost that it's going to require to fix the top three issues with my product and be pretty confident about the corresponding growth that's going to come from that fix. On top of all that, the dynamic in the marketplace is such that the length of time that you have to do those iterations is smaller than it's ever been and will only continue to decrease because of the ease of entry for competitor products. And that's the bad news. The good news is that ratings and reviews as a source of consumer insight are nearly real time and relative to other traditional marketing research techniques very, very fast and very inexpensive. Can either of you or both of you provide examples of companies that have used these online ratings as an asset and took the input from consumers and somehow improved their product? So one example is in home improvement in outdoor lighting. And there was a product where part of the value prop of it is that even when you walk up to it or, you know, there's senses any motion, it kicks on or it gets brighter. And there was an issue with that product where that wasn't happening on a consistent basis. As you can imagine, somebody spends a few hours on a Saturday putting one of those up and then they, you know, bring their family or whatever and like, hey, watch this thing work, right? And then they walk up to it, (laughs) it doesn't work. So they're not happy. In that particular case, the company went through the effort to make it better, redesign it, and they saw substantial growth as a result in the sales. I think we have a case study on this brand that originated as a generic brand selling primarily on Amazon and it's, you know, flashlights and software peripheries like, you know, cables and mice. They were really pioneering in how to come in and disrupt the marketplace and how to meet consumers on their own terms and figure out how to leverage these dynamics. So they were one of the first companies or brands that would mine reviews extensively on their products to both make product improvements, but also to quickly get out in front 
of dissatisfied customers who were leaving reviews and course correct that. So one of the things that we're seeing is that successful entrants in these online marketplaces are the ones who are the most responsive to the reviews, who are most proactive in soliciting reviews, and who are doing really the best job at what I would call online marketplace hygienics. And we're seeing that many incumbent brands are not keeping up with just the basic hygienics of how to market your products in these marketplaces. But this particular example has done so well online and at Amazon that you can also find them in some brick and mortars now. And it all is because they were taking the feedback that consumers were giving them and improving their products iteratively over time. Simple as that. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the things that companies can do to make sure that consumers' expectations match the actual product that they're buying. How can companies clean up their language to create that dynamic? So first is be clear about your product and what it is, and in some cases, what it isn't. We were looking at an example the other day on salsa, where the salsa proclaimed to be a spicy salsa. When we go through the reviews, it was very clear it was not spicy, right? It was mild. And so that's easy to fix. Just call it the mild salsa, right? Or you can reformulate and make it spicy, you know, but just call it what it is. And so you don't disappoint. It's not a lot of science behind that. And I think that's one of those things like now it's very easy to find those cases and address them. It happens all the time. I think the second thing is be aware of not only just of the product and its performance, but like what the experience is going to be like and what's going to take. And I think in particular in a world where you know, if you go back to like home improvement, for example, Ease of installation, instructions, you know, all that stuff is really important. The two words, no tools, are really powerful. It's not necessarily the first thing you'd think to call out on a, you know, whatever, a desk. But to be able to say no tool assembly on a desk is a big deal. You know, if there's something that someone might think they're going to get out of something, but they're not, you've got to be very clear about that because it's going to come back. It's going to return. We haven't talked about that, but that's a huge piece of the economics here. Returns are way higher online than standard. And so don't be shy to just say it's this and not that. And if you want that, that's a different thing. By the way, that's probably another SKU you should have. That's an upsell. Dave, you had mentioned sort of how it's easier, maybe more common that companies can make the business case for how to move the budget around to prioritize product improvements. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how companies should think about doing that. There's a couple different levels to it. You start at a macro level and say, across my whole portfolio of products, where do I have the biggest, what you might call star rating growth opportunity? That's something, again, that's easy to do. Right. I can go scrape all of the star ratings, you know, for a company's entire portfolio. And then same thing with their competitors and then break it out by category, you know, by major category for the company and say, okay, which of these categories are you leading versus lagging your competitors and which ones, frankly, are you lagging the most? And then, you know, let me also stack that up against how much revenue each one of these categories drives and then use a little bit of the science and research that we've done and say, okay, so what is the percentage growth opportunity by category based on my star rating gap? It's not decimal point accurate, but it's a really nice way to say, what are the first three categories I should probably start using this kind of thinking on where I'm going to get the most growth? And you can even size it, right? You can put a dollar number on it. And we've seen dollar numbers in the hundreds of millions. 
fairly frequently we'll see percentage increases, numbers of 30 to 50 percent, you know, by going, for example, from a 4.2 to a 4.5 is worth a lot of growth. It depends on the category and everything. So that's first at the macro level. First of all, like, you know, hey, if this is worth $500 million in growth in my company, okay, I'm ready to probably dedicate some resources and tools and all that kind of stuff, right? Next thing is, okay, which three categories do you use them on? I can answer that question. Then next thing is, Clicking on the micro, all right, inside these categories, which SKUs have the biggest opportunity? Same logic, right? Then the question becomes on those SKUs, what are the three or four or five attributes that I need to fix first? And now I know if I fix that, here's what I'm going to get in terms of growth. So how does that business case stack up? I've got cost and benefit. It's pretty straightforward. It sounds great. It's a very systematic approach looking at the issues the growth and volume of online reviews and increased importance. Is that here to stay? 100%. No one's going to trade a more time-consuming, less transparent, in-store-only experience for a less time-consuming, more transparent online experience, right? You know, for a long time, it was like, well, I don't know. You know, I'll do it with toothpaste, but I don't know about a grill, and then it's like, well, I'll do it with a grill, but maybe not a refrigerator, you know? And then it's like, well, I don't know about a car, right? I think more and more, it's like, it works for everything. It really does. There was an article in the New York Times recently. There's an online auction marketplace for vintage cars and supercars. Pre-pandemic, most of their auctions were, you know, twenty to $50,000 automobiles. Post pandemic, they're able to auction supercars anywhere from $400,000 to $1.5 million. It's completely virtual. People are willing to do a million and a half dollar transaction for a product that they will not physically touch or examine. And now, if that doesn't bring into sharp relief a fundamental shift in consumer behavior across the board, I'm not sure what else would. Thank you, Chauncey and Dave, for joining us. You're welcome. Super fun conversation. Been a pleasure. Next up, let's hear from Princess Daisy Akita. I've been at the firm for almost a year, and it feels like, oh my God, how could I have done so many different things in so many different contexts? So before McKinsey, I had just finished JD and taken the bar exam. was very much in the space of lawyer thinking and uh, like being super, super detail oriented. And like, you know, I mean, lawyers go to work and for entire days, look for periods and commas. Coming here and experiencing what I think is a slightly different value paradigm where harking to the 80-20 principle where the first 20% of your effort can give you 80% of the value. And that has really reinforced the idea that sometimes it's good to really refine an answer over and over, but oftentimes there's also value in going with your gut, seeing what the data tells you at the very beginning and seeing what story you can build from there. I grew up in Ghana. I lived in Ghana until I was about 17, 16, 17, and then moved to the US for the last two years of high school. I studied applied math in undergrad, and I really liked the like very precise, very quantitative nature of that, and that was amazing. 
And then like fast forward a few years later, I was in law school, which is like <laughs> the exact opposite of that. Very reading heavy, very qualitative. And so the idea that consulting existed where I could really leverage data in a way where storytelling counted. And so like bringing together those quantitative and qualitative interests, I thought it was fantastic. Frankly, I can't really think of many careers where I can build all of that into, you know, a single job on a day-to-day basis and then still get to do tech work, which I think is really interesting. And so I, I think that consulting is great for people who have a ton of interests. Most of my studies have been in SHAPE and SHAPE is the social sector, healthcare and public entity practice area here. And the idea is that it's sort of a lot under that umbrella, but we work with clients, obviously in the healthcare space, but also federal and state and local governments. My first SHAPE experience was related to COVID. So bringing us back to the idea of getting vaccinated and testing. And we were working with a state government to try to roll out vaccination across the state, which as you can imagine was incredibly exciting and incredibly impactful and incredibly intense. We needed to you know, make sure that our, our state partners were ready and able to get that vaccination machine up and running. There were over 30 people doing work on sort of the same topic, right? And if you can think about it, these are 30 people who are thinking and breathing the same very problem and making sure that everybody is on the same page, making sure that we're continuously aligned about what the goal was. And this was a rapidly evolving situation, not to use that term loosely, but it was rapidly evolving. And so educating and re-educating the team that that absolutely, I think, would will still remain a hallmark of my McKinsey experience. I do feel that there's there's a sense of possibility and there's a sense that if you can envision something, if you can build a compelling case for it, there's runway for you to bring that to fruition within the firm. One thing I really appreciate about McKinsey, and this is in contrast to some of the other consulting firms I've learned about, is how much agency you have over what work you do you're able to select which study you end up working on. And and so for the next three months, you know that you're thinking about this problem. And if this problem and this group of people feel inspiring to you, you get to follow your heart and you get to do that. And you do that over and over again. And eventually you build a McKinsey experience and you build a life that you can appreciate and you can celebrate. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks. 